there were times where, where people had to land or hover, say, over a, a, a bomb crater in a hot, humid day with five big SAS guys with all of their gear on. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. In episode 54, we get to finish the second half of the interview with Jack Lynch about flying Huey gunships in Vietnam. A very big welcome back from wherever it is that you're listening and tuning in today. You might have your feet up on the couch, out for a run, or like listener Doug Taylor, you might be driving a triple trailer cattle road train in the Northern Territory while you save up for your license training. Whatever it is, thanks for taking the time out to learn more about helicopters, helicopter history, and the helicopter industry. There are bold pilots and there are old pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. I'm sure you've heard that little bit of aviation lore or wisdom passed around before. There is a similar one that I'll read out in a moment, but the thing that got me to to go look these up really came from left field. But it meshes in nicely with what we get to learn about, about hearing from the stories that our guests share on these podcasts. So I've just finished reading a book about how to be a stand-up comedian and the tricks and preparation and the huge amounts of rehearsal that the professional comedians do. So they can appear to be making up jokes on the spot and ad-libbing and performing effortlessly. Now, I've got no plans of jumping on stage or telling jokes, but I love you know peering behind the curtains of things and seeing how they, they work and how things tick. And you can draw so many parallels between the content in this you know, How to Be a Professional Comedian book and what we see when we look at a, a really professional pilot. You know those pilots that you've met that just make things look so easy and effortless? It might be placing down a long line load spot on with no swing. It could be you know, greasing a, a touchdown auto or working between power line strands. Just like there is an actual teachable process on how to go about writing a joke, all these flying activities have a teachable process too. Now, these are the elements I've pulled from the, the book that uh, the author really hammers home. So, you know, nothing beats stage time on stage in front of a, an audience for a comedian. It's about the, the process, you know, the brainstorming, the associations, the joke writing, the editing, and the rewriting. You know, rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. And the fact that, you know, 10% of jokes get on stage and only 10% of those end up being great material. So one in a hundred jokes that comedians write is actually any good. So you can draw your own parallels between those things I just mentioned for comedians and, you know, flying hours experience for for pilots. I can see why, you know, flying hours becomes such a a benchmark for, for jobs and for roles. And the line in the book that got me going down this whole path was, good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. So it's good judgment comes from experience, but experience itself actually comes from, from making bad judgments. Which brings us full circle back to this quote that I, I went looking for. So the quote is, 
It was said by a wise old aviator that when a pilot first qualifies or gets a professional license, he is given two bags. One is marked luck and is fairly full. The other is marked experience and is empty. The trick for the pilot is to fill the bag marked experience before the bag marked luck runs out. As we listen to Jack today, and indeed all our guests on the show, here's to hoping that we can you know, borrow from someone else's bag marked experience a little for our own bag. Let's get amongst it as we cover everything from SAS pranks to rockets to flying to the limits to saving a multi-million dollar jet. So some of those rifle, you know, you often hear of, especially uh, our uh, our tradies tagging, you know, visiting aircraft and things like that. Is there, a, you know, a couple of stories like that where there might have been a nighttime raid on, you know, one of the US helicopters to, to put stickers or tags or, well, paint or anything like that? There's not on the US, but the Special Air Service had uh, their base on SAS Hill, which was a small hill within the complex of the Nuidat headquarters complex. And because we had such a good relationship with them whenever we'd pull them out of a hot extraction and they'd done their debriefing they would actually come down to our base and we'd sit in a perimeter bunker with a couple of cases of beer and we'd talk over the day's activities and if they were kiwis we had kiwis up there as well new zealand sas and if it was them but somewhat have a guitar and all of the kiwi especially the Maoris, they could all play guitar and sing as well as Harry Belafonte. And we'd be singing songs and drinking beer in the bunkers and having a good old time. But they lived on this SAS hill with their tents. No great structure there. They did have a sort of a mess area. And they had painted on the 9th Squadron shack where it was a waiting area for people to jump on helicopter. And they painted the head of a pilot with a helmet on it and it was quite a rude, I won't go into great detail, sure. <laughs> but, but it was quite a rude depiction of a nice squadron helicopter man. Yep. And we decided we'd, we'd get our own back. So we got invited up to their, their uh, SAS hill one night. We stayed over at, uh, at Nui Dap. And uh, we were going to distract them by having fun inside their mess while a couple of guys were secretly getting up on top of their mess roof and painting rude things on that. And, and this all went extremely well, so we thought. And when it became time for the night to finish, we were saying our goodbyes and we went back and we had a Jeep, a US Army Jeep. And I forget who was driving, but I was sitting in the front right-hand seat and the driver in the left. And he grabbed the steering wheel and said, God, this feels all sorts of sticky. Oh, no. I said, yeah, bloody seat feels sticky as well. And then he said, I can't see through the windscreen. And what had happened while our guys were up on the roof, painting something equally rude on their roof about the SAS. They'd actually got spray cans of matte black paint and painted every square inch of the, of the Jeep. <laughs> so it was sort of a draw. But they wouldn't have seen your artwork until they flew over? Or was it no, the, that's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and we would delight in bringing them back from somewhere and then flying over and pointing down at the, at the rude words on top of their roof. But there was another, that was the SAS. There were many SAS operations that did turn really, really nasty. And I remember being on one, I forget his call sign, but let's say it was call sign, 3-7. And it was, the patrol commander was a, a Sergeant Joe Van Droffler, a wonderful soldier and leader of a, a patrol. And he was a Dutchman, still had a little Dutch accent, and but he also had a little bit of a stutter. And his patrol had been in the jungle for some days up to the northeast of our province, and they were sprung by about, I think, 80 to 100 
North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops who they'd been monitoring the pro- their progress, and they were being chased through the jungle. So here was this five-man patrol running through the jungle, trying to get to an area to get a safe extraction out, but not really knowing where that best area to go was. So they broke radio silence, and we in the gunships were the first there to give them cover, awaiting the, the slicks to come in and pull them out. So I called up, I was Bush Ranger 7-1, Bob Trelaw was 7-2, and I forget who was who was a 7-3, I think it was. we had a heavy fire team. And I called up 3-7, Bush Ranger 7-1, and we went through the conversation as to where they were and where the enemy was from their position. And then once you define that, you could work out your attack direction to attack basically a line, perpendicular to a line between them and the enemy position. And then you would break towards the friendlies. And at that point, you'd get them to throw a smoke canister. The smoke, the coloured smoke would come up through the jungle. You would identify the smoke and then they'd say, right, the enemy is 100 metres west, whatever. And away you'd go. Well, on the first pass, I was going to put in a a white phosphorus rocket to mark the spot so that they could see the the white coming up through the jungle and say, that yes, that's good. You need to go long, short, left or right. And we had many guns, but we also had a seven pod or seven rocket pod on each side of the aircraft. Now, did it swivel vertically? Did it have an, or was it fixed? No, no it, it was fixed yep, and, yep. and harmonized with the uh, the gun sight. And you could select single rocket, you could select pairs, you could set, select ripple. And uh, I got the copart to select one rocket. Now, normally things do not go wrong because the rockets were electrically fired. There would be a pulse of electricity go through and it would spark off the initiator for the rocket to fire. Well, unbeknown to me, we found out later that there had been a problem that you you even check for this, it's called a stray voltage, and you check for it before, after you've rearmed the aircraft. So um, it was was fine when we armed the aircraft, so we'd done all we could. But when I fired what I thought was going to be one single rocket, all 14 rockets... Seven rockets from both sides with no timing between them at all. Normally a ripple will go to timing so that they won't run into each other and won't explode and you have the danger of flying through them. But all 14 rockets went together and, of course, they're hitting each other in front of the aeroplane and going, going all over directions, yeah. And there's the purple smoke where, where Joe Van Droffel's patrol was and it went all around it and obliterated the smoke. So the first thing that goes in, into my mind was, I'm the first nine squadron pilot yeah, to, to destroy fire. a total five-man patrol of the SAS. So I broke off, told number two to hold his fire, and there's silence. And my heart is just something, and my whole crew is just, yeah, yeah, you know, just, just dead silence. And then I heard the most wonderful sound I've ever heard in my life. This voice came over the radio. But but Bush Rangers says seven one. That was beautiful. Do it again. <laughs> now, if Joe had only known yeah. what had gone through our heads and our hearts, but he well, thought that was really good because not only did it surround them, but it, it lobbed on the enemy as well. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. There's a moment you have it. Anyway, we, we went on and uh, used my miniguns and the second aircraft used his his rockets, and we called in a. A slick, and we directed them to a, a large bomb crater from a B-52 strike that was sort of filled with water, but it was clear around the edge. Yep. They they fought their way through the jungle, escaping these enemy as they went, and we were doing our bit to uh, keep heads down, stop the enemy progressing after them. And uh, a rescue chopper came in under the command of another command and control aircraft, 
pull them out and flew them back to base for another successful day at the office. Wow. Because there's a, another radio exchange, I know a similar article or, or another story, it might be even on the um, on one of the other association pages, where you guys did a lot of danger close work in the gunships. You know, you were firing very, very close to the, to the guys. And there's one there where the radio call comes over and they say, you know, stop firing, you're hitting us. Mm. And then again, the crew, the, the exchange basically says the crew, again, just heart in the mouth and oh, no, we've, we've shot our right. guys. Yeah. And they come back and say, no, it's all right, it's just your shell cases have been falling on us. That's right. And uh, yeah, so that's, well, that's pretty close. Well, for junior officers, you, you, you came in situations, a lot of us were pilot officers, you know, the lowest rank in, in the Air Force, in the officer ranks. What was the average age of the, the crews? Low 20s, probably 20 to 20, 25. I was 25, and, but there were fellows five years younger than me, and they'd be in their early 20s. So you're talking about pilot officer rank being the yeah, lowest? Yeah, decision making. We're talking about decision making. There were times where someone would be in contact with an enemy. You'd go through the, where are you, throw the smoke. They'd say the enemy is X metres to the west of here, so you'd start attacking. And we had limits of, I think it was 50 metres for, for rockets and 25 metres for miniguns. Yeah. And you could fly to those limits, but you were really well trained and feel, feel fairly safe. But there were times where the enemy were actually inside, they were closer to the, our guys than, than our minimum limits. So then you had to decide. You couldn't say, well, sorry, we can't. Can't do anything for you. You talk with the guy on the ground, and he would say, well, "Just keep marching it in, and we'll tell you when you get too close." Or words to that effect. You'd work out some way, and there were a number of times where we had to do that, and it actually saved the day. There was one in uh, six RAR, fellow by the name of Terry Mallington. We covered his platoon, and we thought we didn't know how how close and how really dangerous it was on the ground. And he just kept telling us, bring it in closer, bring it in closer. And we'd bring it in as, as well as we could with the, with the system that we had and the accuracy with which we could pinpoint their position. And I didn't find out until many, many years later what actually happened because he turned out to be on my staff college course. I was Air Force, but I was one Air Force squadron leader on an Army staff college course in 1982. And he happened to be in my syndicate. And we got talking Monday and he said, oh, and he mentioned this action. And we found out that he'd been on the ground. Yeah, and you were in the air. Uh, and yeah. I was in the air. And he said, you know, it hadn't been for you guys that day, we, we would have been dead meat. And he said, if, if we hadn't talked you in as close as we did, it would have been all over. And I said, well, I knew it was close, but how close was it? He said, well, we're in an area where there's a lot of bamboo and there were some, some old logs of trees that had been cut down. We were laying down, trying to get under these logs, and he had his head up, trying to talk and, and call us in. And we were actually cutting the bamboo off over the heads, about four feet above yeah. their heads. But he said, if we hadn't done that, it would have been good night nurse. We're talking like, I'm thinking the accuracy for the, for the flying now, mm. because obviously, you know, you're still shooting from a, a fair way out. We're talking about miniguns. Yes. So yeah. the smallest amount of yore in the aircraft right. could yeah. be walking that fire, you know, yes. metres over yeah. the ground. And that's, that's where you, you, you really became part of the aircraft and you... You really sweated on on being part of the aircraft, so you could back your judgment. Yep. You sort of respect that more in retrospect because when you're doing it, it's just just what you do. Yeah. But then later on, when when such things as meeting a fellow who was laying on the ground next to a log and you're cutting off bamboo over his head, that sort of gets your attention, and you realise how close things were and how dangerous it was for them on the ground. 
Yeah, because you think you, you know, your modern attack machines, your patches, things like that, with a yes, slave target, sure, yeah, things like yeah. that. It's, it's um, all jarish, stabilized systems, whatever. Yeah, yeah. where you know, Huey, there's no, no, yeah. there's no avionics there in terms of uh, you know stability no. control. It's, it's all right. pure yeah. hands and feet. So yeah, even just mathematically, you know, you think of the angles involved and things yeah. like that. It's very accurate flying. The, the other interesting thing from a, being part of the aircraft, we had four four radios. We had VHF FM which we used to talk to the troops on the ground, VHF AM, which we used to talk back to our, our base, UHF, which we used predominantly to talk between our, our aircraft within our flight. And we had HF, which sometimes you used for, or you could hear in the background. There'd be times where all four nets would be going. Yeah, all four you? nets would be going. And also you're doing the intercom in your own aircraft, coordinating who's going to fire and who's going to not fire. And what we're going to do, you're going to brief the guys what you're going to do in this particular pass and you're briefing your flight. You're talking to the people on the ground and that 5RAR exercise would not exercise without operation with the slicks uh, doing the, the dust off and rescue, plus three gunships. And you're talking to all of these and this picture is in your head and you become studying the, in the flexibility and the adaptability of the human mind. It was fascinating. And it wasn't just me. It was yeah. everybody that did that had to be able to do that. And you sometimes think, well, you know, that's really, really sad. You're processing on so many different things. I, I know personally, yeah. like from human factors, it's yeah. something that when I get loaded up, the, yeah. the first yeah. thing I drop is the audio. So, yes. Um, yeah. if, you know, especially on a busy that's IFL right. flight yeah. or something like that, yeah. when I'm, I'm really working mm. as hard as I can, yeah. and I notice that's the first thing I yeah. yeah. drop is the audio side of things. Yes. Okay, let's steer back then. Well, well, one, early on you talked about, um, you know, being able to fly helicopters to the limits. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that, that sort of carried over to the jet training. Can you, know, what were the times, you know, I imagine you're almost probably, almost, always flying to the limits if you, especially when you're heavy in a gunship and, and doing those patterns. But was there times when you really felt that was on the limits for the machine? Well, there were times I didn't, I was fortunate not to have any really dire situation, but there are other times where, where someone was in trouble on the ground, it might be an SAS patrol, and the only way of getting that is by by landing, because you're in a spot where you can land and you don't have time to winch them, it's too dangerous, and the aircraft may not have a rope extraction in it, but yep. you've got to get these guys out. Now, there were times where, where people had to land or hover, say, over a, a bomb crater in a hot, humid day with five big SAS guys with all of their gear on, weapons and ammunition and water and what have you. And you had to somehow get out of this pad. And there were times where people had to get back, put their tail back as far as they can into it. To get some distance to, to move. To get yeah. the distance. And then there were times where actually you ran out of excess power and people actually did have to pump, was sort of described as pumping the aircraft out. You'd head towards the, the tops of the trees to hopefully miss it, but you might you your flight path out might just drop and it looks like you're going to hit the tree. So you'd do a suck and you'd bleed your RPM down a little bit, but you get that extra bit of thrust and lift you up, yep. and then you drop it down so the rotor could speed up again. Yeah, and then you might have to do that two or three times to get the airplane out and drag the. Heard of people out. doing it, and I've never been able to really yeah. sort of replicate a type yeah. thing. And obviously, anytime you you're drooping the rotor, it's not you know there's yeah. a whole heap of complications. Well, I personally uh, never really had to do that, but yeah. I, I know other colleagues who did, and it was just amazing. And we had been trained in it. We had some instructors who were, who were very good at training us in that. And the way they used to do it, they'd wind off. You'd be in auto fuel, but they'd, they'd wind the throttle back yep. and you'd drop the RPM down until you got a minimum excess of power. And then in a fairly benign pad situation, you would then operate this method of, of getting the airplane out of the pad. Yep. And it did work and it, 
I'm sure it did save helicopters, lives of the crew and the troops on a number of occasions in Vietnam, especially in, in the wet and the hot humans human situation yeah and again we're talking fairly you know early machines like you know the Iroquois initially you know you had H models towards the end of that's right guessing. so that's yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah the tropics well, yeah. all these guys aboard right. they would have been a braver uh, burning model, a braver model with, with five troops on board you're really working to to get it out of a pad like that yeah and Jack, just for, for listeners, we you know we can't really cover your your jet career no, afterwards, but no. but you know so you can't if you just give it a quick what jet fly, types did you fly? So once you finished up on helicopters, you flew what types? Well, fortunate enough to go on to Sabres, which were well, then sort of a lead into the Mirage. Yep. So it so, had that feel like all the way back. You tell the story about sitting on the horse and watching oh, it go over, and then sitting in, in the cockpit of a, a Sabre. A lot of things happened. A lot of obstacles went in the way. Having to, you know leaving school. Having to go back to school to get education required for the Air Force and then not being able to get in because my father wouldn't sign and then locking into a, an engineering cadetship and then the electricity trust used to say it was a number of years we worked in, in engineering offices and you're going to do part-time study for a number of years, much longer than a, a normal degree. But I met each, reached age 23, which was the upper limit for Air Force pilots course, and I just had to do it. And I have no regrets that I didn't finish it off. So I ended up through uh, Group Captain Bayard and supporting myself and Bomber around, getting onto the Sabres, uh, which we did for uh, a couple of years before they were disbanded in uh, July 1971. And then uh, on the Mirage course to Butterworth, Malaysia on Mirages. We yep. had two squadrons up there, 75 and number three squadron. Spent two years there, a really great flying on Mirages. Back to Australia for a year and... I'd always tried to run my own five-year plan. <laughs> by, it's often hard in the Defence Force. But... By, by, by working out where I wanted to be in five years and I'd apply to do some obscure little courses that seemed obscure to other people, but I always had a plan. And I knew that there was an exchange tour in America on reconnaissance phantoms, the RF-4C. So I did a two-month ground course in all to do with photography. It was a really great professional photography course. Learn all about, all you need to know about cameras and films and all that. Because I knew that, I thought that if I had that duck in a row, it would be a good qualification to go on to a reconnaissance phantom with all of its sensors on board. And that's fortunate for me. It did work out that way. And I replaced Bruce Connell, who had actually been on my pilot's course and was a fighter pilot on Mirage's before he went over there. And so I got an exchange tour in the United States for three years after being back in Australia for a year on the RF-4 in the deep south in South Carolina. The job was as an instructor. So I did an instructor's course on the Phantom over in South Carolina at Shore Air Force Base. Did a three-year tour, which was absolutely marvellous. Uh, you could take a Phantom once a month anywhere in the main continental US. And they're not a small aircraft. Like, they're big. They are. Yeah. yeah. And got to do such things as flying down inside the Grand Canyon in the days when uh, you were allowed to do that. I remember doing a trip across to Las Vegas once uh, via Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma and then down into the Grand Canyon. First time I'd done it, so I thought five to six hundred feet above the Colorado River would be a reasonable height. And then uh, I heard some U.S. Marine Corps A7s, Skyhawks, coming the other way. And they were literally down on the river kicking up a rooster tail, going the opposite direction. And people in, in the raft, you know, the raft down yeah. the, the Colorado River must have looked absolutely spectacular. These two jets going one way, 
cut to right down on the river. And the, the noise must have been oh, in the down walls. in the deep canyon. Wow. Yeah. And did many sorts of things. They weren't dangerous. They were just part of what you did. And it was good training. And uh, at the end of that, I ended up coming back onto the F-111 at Amberley and then went back about a year after that to do the testing of the reconnaissance systems on the F-111, which became the RF-111. At that time, I was the reconnaissance commander on the F-111. Stayed there for four years, all told, and then went to Army Staff College, and I enjoyed that as well. If you must do a staff job, an old fort down by the mouth of the Port Phillip Bay, overlooking all the ships cruising in, uh, beautiful sand hills to run yeah, to work. In terms of a desk job, it wasn't too yeah, bad. That's a desk job. Yeah. I stayed there on the on the staff after my years course, and then I went to ground jobs. Spent the last five years actually of my career actually with the Army. Uh, at nearly three years at Army Staff College, uh, student and then directors, and then I uh, went to Nogra, another staff job as a divisional air liaison officer with uh, General Mike Jeffrey when he was the division commander. And then I was actually offered a job by Hawker de Havilland who were about to build the PC-9 for the Air Force. And I'd been a career officer up until then. Yep. And... The managing director had seen my resume from some presentation I'd done to a lieutenant colonel in the reserve who happened to work for Hawker to Haven, and he got me to go down and have a chat. And then I applied for the job and got the job as the PC-9 production test pilot on the PC-9 for three or four years. And that transition, like we spoke earlier about the worry the Air Force had over these helicopter pilots going into jets and it would be too hard for them. What was that like going from, you know, your 100 knot Huey into how fast was a Sabre? Well, the Sabre could do 610 knots. Yeah. And the, and the Mirage was Mark 2.2. F-111 is 2. Mark 2.5, which is Toowoomba to Brisbane in 2 minutes 40 seconds. Well, it was used for, for nav. faster than the Huey. Yeah, well, we're using a nav theory. You talk about, you know, drift and allowing off. And we'll, yeah. I'll normally use the example of an F-111. They don't worry about drift. They just point in the direction they want to go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of, yeah. But it was. We came back and the first thing we had to do was a jet refresher. Wow, we okay, yep, choppers. Yep. And we flew the Mackie down at Ralph Basie's sail in middle of winter. And good luck to the people who are going down there to do pilot training over the next few years because winters in sail are really bracing, I can, I can tell you that. But the most spectacular thing, I think, was in formation flying or on approach. You'd be coming in on approach, getting towards landing and... There was initially a tendency to pull the pull the power off too early because you're trying to pull in collective yeah, yeah. power, and likewise with the. So what, what was the touchdown? I don't know, like relative touchdown speeds. Do you remember roughly what oh, the threshold about, speeds were? And I think about ninety five something. Yeah, I think that'd be a thing for me. You'd be constantly yeah, feeling yeah, like and you were faster than a normal yeah, yeah. sixty knot Huey approach, and that was a bit blasted a short yeah, while, and, and then your your head goes back to what you'd originally learned, and then then the next part. That sort of frustrated the instructors a little bit. What they hadn't seen before was in formation. In a Huey, to reduce power, you, you, you drop the collective. Yeah, yeah. And the same action in an aeroplane. If you're moving ahead and you, you want to drop back, you reduce power, right? But the only thing that represents a, a Huey collective is a throttle that you push forward. <laughs> <laughs> so they could have been antsy so you, if you were just starting to get closer. So, so you start to roar past the leader. <laughs> but that only lasts a couple of times. And then your head goes back. No, it reduced power. You pull the throttle back. Yeah. So, but that was uh, probably one of the frustrating things. Only for a short while. On the, yep. on the first or second flight, 
and then then you yeah make it adjust pretty quick. But one, one thing I think did frustrate our, our fighter instructors, one of which I won't name, but it was a delightful fellow. But we'd been used to speaking whatever you had to say for two for for probably a couple of years on choppers. Yeah, just get the job certainly done. a concentrated effort of about nine hundred hours, anything up to eight, nine, ten hours a day in Vietnam where there was no standard phrasing for anything. You just had to speak as clearly as you could to solve the problem that you had, and they were all different. And, of course, you go to a fighter squadron or a fighter training outfit, number five operational training unit, and these old dyed-in-the-wall fighter pilots were there, and you were starting to just talk English instead of the standard phrases, and they'd actually go mad. But eventually we we were able to slip back into the more organised and disciplined Radio transmissions. Yeah, they struck me as very different worlds, the mm. sort of the fighter world and it the is, yes. world. Yeah. yeah, all the way through because you did the maintenance test flying, obviously working with the you know the maintenance engineers, getting the gunships up and going, yeah. and then obviously with the F one elevens, the the role of standing up in the US yeah. and getting them back. Yeah. So all the way through your career, you had that you know sort of engineering sort of contact. Yeah, I was because I'd done some engineering studies. I was always interested in the engineering aspects of the aeroplane. And I always used to get into the hangars, even on pilot's course. I'd try and learn more about the aeroplane than I was being taught. And I'd read stories about people with experience of major problems happening that aren't in the books. But because I had more in-depth knowledge and were able to make decisions on the spot based on the technical knowledge that I acquired, I thought that was the way to go. And I've been a Price alike for that with every young pilot or old pilot ever since stressing the importance of deep engineering knowledge of whatever aeroplane it is that you fly. Cessna 152 or Robinson R22 all the way through to Hornet Jet or C-17 or 139 rescue aeroplane or whatever. And it's served me well. I've had a couple of incidents, one on pilot's course where a spring broke on a rudder pedal. It was on my 70-hour test. Wow. Yep. I broke on, on a rudder pedal. And we came into a land in a, in a little bit of a crosswind. And I was with squad leader Arthur Barnes at CFI, chief flying instructor at Point Cook. And when we landed, the aeroplane started to drift. I fed in right rudder to stop it drifting off the runway. And the more I fed in right rudder, the harder it turned to the oh, left. really? And he thought that I'm a fairly big fellow, but size 13 boots. And he was convinced that I'd, I'd done it with my big boots and I couldn't feel it. And I knew I hadn't done it. And my first real lesson and I thought I was going to get scrubbed off the course I, did, yeah. I just didn't know because he was really angry we debriefed the mission he said let's think about this we're going to have to go and fly with you again because we hadn't finished the test and I went down the hangar and spoke to a warrant officer engineer and I said I'm convinced that I did not cause this problem there's got to be something wrong he said right up we'll pull some panels off and they found a simple description was a spring had broken it dropped down in between the suspension arm for the rudder pedal and the rudder pedal. The more I pushed the, the right rudder, the harder the left brake came on because the spring was jammed between oh, so the, the pedal. So the left brake that was turning pedal, Yeah, between the pedal and the arm. And there was nothing I could do about it. So I was just so thrilled. I said, can you please call Squadron Leader <laughs> yeah. Barnes and tell him what this is? And Squadron Leader Barnes, he was very relieved as well. And uh, he apologised for treating me so, so roughly. Yeah, but it was, I understood uh... why he thought that. There are other times on other aeroplanes uh, where many people have saved aeroplanes, whether it's in the military or in the civilian world. Big, big airliner, for instance, uh, lost hydraulics, a DC-10 lost hydraulics, and it was coming and it came in to land at Sioux City in America. 
Yeah, they use a differential throttle. Use differential throttle. That's all they had. It was differential throttle and differential power for attitude. And they could only turn about five degrees back one way. So, and he eventually got it on the ground. Some people were killed, but he saved the crew and the majority of the passengers. And there was another one, a classic one, coming out of Aloha Airlines, coming out of Hawaii, and a large section of the, the yeah, fuselage, the part of the aircraft. And because... And this fellow was, was an ex-fighter pilot in the US Air Force, as had the other fellow with the hydraulic problem. But they had this knowledge, and it's relatively easy to get, and it's, it's knowledge you would love to have after the fact. If you had a major crash and if someone got killed, you'd think, oh, God, I wish I'd got into the books a bit more because if I'd understood that a bit better, we might have saved the day. And I, I stress that to every young pilot I meet now. Get into the books, learn more than you're ever taught, Get into the maintenance manuals for your aeroplane. Most pilots only ever read the pilot's flight manual. Get into the maintenance manuals. Ask the engineers questions. And if you can get in there and hand them spanners as they work and ask them questions without distracting them too much, they will learn and they will understand how valuable deep technical knowledge of the aeroplane is essential for a pilot to be a really good captain. And you've got a mirage story that touches on that? Was there, we might finish with that. And Yeah, there, there is. Yeah, I did have a, a mirage on uh, my third last flight in a mirage. I had a, a nose gear failure. I had to land. I hasten to add that wasn't my fault. I had to land with no nose wheel, which is a very exciting thing. But the, the other one was the very next flight. I'd, I'd done a low-level Navex, which was out of Rathbase, Williamtown, just north of Newcastle. And it was going to culminated in a gunnery, a gunnery operation at the Singleton Range, which was about 35, 40 miles inland from uh, Rathbase, Williamtown. But there was a cloud, a low cloud, and it was a forward air controller going to direct me onto the target. And I, I came over the hills north of Singleton. I was above a cloud layer, turned to try and find a hole to get down to see the target. And as I did, the aircraft started to slow down rapidly, and I instinctively pushed the throttle up. Uh, nothing happened. Because I'd been taught by doing aircraft maintenance flying, maintenance test flying, my boss in Butterworth, Peter Spurgeon, was my flight commander and my mentor on Mirage maintenance test flight, had told me about this little device in the fuel control unit that you never really get taught about. You know it's there, but you never get really taught about what happens if it goes wrong, because it never goes wrong. Yeah. But this day it did go wrong. And in a nutshell, it was a situation where you could push the throttle up. And of course, as the speed's coming, I'm pushing the throttle up. And eventually, I had to go into afterburner section. And nothing happened, except that the nozzles down the back that controlled the temperature and the thrust had gone wide open. So I dumped a very large proportion of the thrust of the engine. And I quickly rolled out towards Williamtown. I was 35 miles, something like 3,500 feet. And I pulled them throttle back out of the afterburner into just the, the full military power sector and had about a, did some rapid calculations all the way back. And I figured that I could get to final approach because the weather was clearing back towards the base at about 800 feet in time to put the gear down and then pretty soon after that land. So you still had partial power or? I had enough power oh. to maintain 240 knots at about 150 feet a minute rate of descent. And I figured that with the distance and the ground speed and the rate of descent, I'd get there with 800 feet. Got there with about 1,100 feet. Put the gear down. And when you put the gear down on the Mariah, just like a well-greased brick, it just went right down. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Managed yeah. to, to get it on the runway, rolled out to a stop. And sure enough, 
pull it to idle, pop the drag chute, and then release the drag chute when we're under control. And at the end of the runway, pushed up the throttle and nothing happened. And that was what my, what Pete Spurgeon has told me. If this fails, you can do anything you like with throttle. But if you bring it back down to halfway, it won't go back up again. And that was knowledge that you learn through osmosis. Him telling me because he was an expert in the flight test side of it. But it, it wasn't knowledge that I learned on any course. Yep. And it was knowledge that I could have picked up if I'd have been like Spurge at that time and he, he'd found out through hard work and, and lots of questioning and again they're just examples of, of saving Europe and, and the Mirage is worth about four million dollars at that time and saved yourself an ejection as well yeah, yeah I wasn't too keen on <laughs> yeah, I wasn't too keen on ejection because most tall guys have problems when they eject out of yeah. Mirages at that time with back problems so I wasn't too keen on that well, Jack, look, thank you. So many stories there. I know, like, we've already pulled out, you know, bits and pieces. with well, Dodger, Hollywood stuff you did outside once you finished up too. And I know you're writing children's books and you're doing a heap of things. But in terms of the consulting side, are you doing, um, is there anything, you know? Well, at the, at the moment, I, I have really decided to concentrate on my writing. And I'm, yep. I'm virtually uh, a writer now and uh, soon to be published. And as well as the children's books, I'm doing other books that will cover some of the stuff that we've talked about, a sort of autobiography thing with some funny stories and some things like we've talked about today. Yeah, well, as they get ready for, uh, for publication and things like that, let us know. We'll yeah. include links on the, so, uh, on the show yeah, notes no, for this too. So. No, no, thanks. I, was, I was very fortunate to have a great life in the military and uh, can recommend it to any young pilot, whether they're flying choppers, Hercules, or whatever, it's a great life. Whether it's choppers in the army now, the army has the choppers. Great helicopters to fly. Chinook's a wonderful helicopter, Black Hawk, and whatever else comes in later on. So thank you very much, Mick. We did, in fact, go grab lunch after the interview and headed out to Aeropower, the flight school that I work at. And the students there got the chance to talk with Jack about his experiences. One of our international students had actually just come from working several years in Vietnam, very close to where Jack and Nine Squadron were based. A number of people that worked with Jack, have known Jack over the years, have left some comments on social media for the last episode, and I'll just read out two here. So Shane Storer writes, Jack is not just an ex-Vietnam Huey gunship pilot, Mirage fighter pilot, F-111 jockey, and private enterprise businessman. He's just a damn good bloke. A true Aussie. And James Watson, or Watto, writes, Jack is an absolute legend and all-round gentleman. I have a great deal of respect for the man. Well done for bringing any stories, just a, a drop in the ocean of his flying times. Jack spoke in his interview about the importance of engineering knowledge and about getting right down to the, the nuts and bolts of your machine and spending time with your engineers wherever the, the chance comes up. So I want to share with you one of those stupid moments of my very own when it comes to knowing the machine that you're flying in. And this happened just last Thursday and on my instructor on your flight of all the possible times, which just makes it that much more humbling. We were in an R22 and I was doing the run-up checks from the left-hand side and got to checking the warning and the caution lights. Now, the other machine I fly regularly is the 300 CBI, which has the low rotor light on you know, through startup right until you get ready to essentially fly to idle. So for whatever reason, I was looking for the low rotor light to be on in the in the 22, and it wasn't on. So I've I've tapped the light, and no good, you know, still didn't come on. 
then I've commented, you know, the light was out and uh, perhaps we had a, had blown a bulb. The examiner didn't say a word. He just looked at me and raised the collective until the micro switch disengaged and the low rotor light came on and then lowered the collective and the light went out. And I'm like, I can't believe I just did that. Anyway, things improved from there. We had no dramas. So that was my most recent dumbass moment related to aircraft engineering knowledge. This episode was brought to you by the listeners. And I really thank you to Rendell for being the very first supporter on our Patreon and for Michael and Jason who followed shortly after. Your funding support goes directly to the bandwidth costs of listeners downloading the episode files. You can be part of the production and support team for the show too. Even just a dollar a show uh, if they keep you entertained and uh, education and help you out. So what you can you can go over and do that at patreon.com forward slash rotarywingshow or rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. I hope you tried out the best Christmas ever Christmas list idea that I shared in the last episode and that you'll get something you actually want and can use this Christmas. Thanks for all your support messages during 2016. It's been a real privilege being able to talk to some of these people and capture their stories and share them and and get the feedback from you guys and and get to know some of you a little bit better too over messages and uh, a few phone calls. I hope you have a, a safe and fun Christmas and New Year's period. Catch you in 2017.